We're on the threshold of a new year. And when we come to these thresholds in time, be it a new year, a birthday, an anniversary, it's not uncommon for us to get introspective and then try and get perspective on where we're going and, and, and take an assessment and, and, and evaluate to try and maybe move in with strength. And, and, and I think that's what you do in the first of a year. It, it makes sense at church for us to stop and kind of think about how do we take on 2009 and, and, and make the most of it as followers of Jesus Christ. And 2008 has left its it's mark on us. I think just about everybody in this room has some scar tissue as a result of this past year. It's been a tough one, hasn't it? But, uh, but, but we have this year ahead of us, and, and we want to make the most of it. So to, to set the stage for this, I want to tell you, start out with a little story. It comes out of the 1960s, and it was about a uh, high school assembly where they had invited recruiters from the Army, Air Force, and Marine Corps to come and talk with the junior and senior guys at the school about possibilities waiting for them after graduation of signing up with one of those branches. This is before we had a co-ed armed forces. They just invited the boys in, and I remember going to an assembly like that myself in Annapolis. It was a 45-minute assembly, and so obviously they had signed 15 minutes to each recruiter. The Army guy was first, Air Force and the Marine recruiter bringing up the end. The Army recruiter got so excited about telling these young men about the options waiting for them, and he dropped names of great generals and great historical events, and he got so carried away he went 20 minutes. The Air Force recruiter was not going to be upstaged by that, and he talked about the great opportunities wait for you career-wise if you put on Air Force Blue and how it's much better for your family and the whole world is your backyard. And he got so carried away, he went 22 minutes, which only left three minutes for the Marine. The principal pointed to his watch as he got up. What could he do in three minutes? Well, instead of going to the microphone, he went down the stairs into the auditorium. By the way, he was dressed in his dress blues. Gave him an advantage there, and he was cut high and tight. His back was hardboard straight, and he just kind of came down in, and he just started staring at all these young men. Just stared him over. Some of them tried to stare him back. They lost. <laughs> Most of them squirmed very uncomfortable. He just looked them all over. And just before the bell rang, he walked up to the microphone. He said, looking out over you guys, looks to me there's only two or three of you who could really cut it as Marines. <laughs> if you think you're one of them, I want to talk with you in the cafeteria afterwards. <laughs> and what do you think happened in the cafeteria? <laughs> he was ambushed. There was a long line of guys, wait, I want to talk to you. I think I'm the guy you were looking at. I, I was the one that you saw that had all that Marine Corps potential. Problem was, he wasn't kidding. He wasn't kidding. He knows what is required of the job. He also knows that people are very quick to sign up but they have a hard time holding their posts with the orders they were given when all hell breaks loose around them and everybody's left them and all they have are their orders and their weapon and that's it. He knows that it's tough. 
And I think as we face this year, we have these things out there that want to intimidate us and frighten us and take us out, knock us down, render us completely ineffective. They're real. They're serious about what they're about. And it's real easy for us to think we have what it takes, but many times we find out we don't. You know, there's these, let's call them giants in the land. All kinds of giants that want to destroy us. And it's interesting how they show themselves. For instance, we have cultural giants. And I've always been amazed how often cultural giants come at me from people I thought were on my side, like my kids. We have a daughter named Karis. She's a wonderful girl. She was in junior high. And I was at my office. The Valentine's dance was coming up, and I got a call at my office. Dad, I just got home from the mall. Now, that there's enough to scare me out of my wits. My daughter at the mall. I just got home from the mall, Dad, and I was looking for a dress for the dance. I found a perfect dress for the dance. And get this, Dad, it only cost $30. And I was wondering, could you loan me the money because I'm doing some babysitting and I'll pay you back? Now, at this point, we need a little time out to put some perspective on it because I've already created a couple of dilemmas in your head. Many of you, or if not all of you, are wondering, What's, why is it that Tim Kimmel's daughter has to buy her own dresses to the, to the Valentine's dances? And the answer to that question could be found in her closet. because I had bought several dresses for her up to that point, and for some reason she treated them like wedding gowns. You only wear once. <laughs> and when I suggested, how about, well, wear this, oh, I wore that one before. Well, how about this one? I, I mean, well, why, why don't you wear, oh, somebody else has one just like, well, you know, staple a ribbon to it or something, try something. <laughs> no, Dad, you gotta have a new one. And so we made a decision that if she wanted a new one, you know, buy it yourself. I told her, I said, if I want to be around clothes never been worn before, I'd go sit in your closet, girl. You might be thinking, since when can you buy a dress for $30? I mean, that's the one that crossed my mind, because I had bought several dresses that had three digits to the left of the decimal. <laughs> and I asked her about it. I said, Dad, it's the last one they wanted out the door. I said, okay, I'll spot you the money. Next day, I got home from work just as she's getting home from the mall. A friend had taken her over there and dropped her off, and... She came in and said, Dad, I got the dress. I'll go upstairs, I'll put it on, and I'll model it for you and Mom. But as she started up the stairs, I started to get very nervous because of what the dress was in. <laughs> See, I'm expecting a big box or something on, you know, on a hanger held high. This thing was in a little bag. <laughs> a little thing like that, you know? About the size of that thing they stick in the slot in front of you on the airplane. And she walked up the stairs with her dress. And she came down a few minutes later with it on. <laughs> she walked into the kitchen, and I was over looking at the mail, and Darcy, uh, she walked past her mom, and, 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 and Darcy looked the thing over, and, and I looked over her shoulder, and Darcy's going like... <laughs> and I, I, I looked, and I said, oh, I see why you like that dress. You look real cute in that dress, but I have a problem with your dress, honey. See, girls' dresses are supposed to be high on the top and low on the bottom. Someone flipped yours upside down. <laughs> and her countenance fell because she had already pictured herself to dance in that dress. 
And I knew why, because we'd chaperoned many of her dances, and we'd seen how many of these girls dress. And oftentimes, we, I'd look at some of these girls, and I'm thinking, where's this girl's father? How'd she clear the front door dressed like this? Well, you don't always have time to make a final decision, but in this time, this we did, and a little parenting tip I found a long, a long time ago, anytime you can delay a hard decision for a while, buy some time, do that. And I said, look, look, I could be overreacting. I don't think I am, but I could be. Tell you what, let's wait 24 hours to make this final decision. So I waited 24 hours. I called her next day when she got home from school. I said, have you thought any more about it? Yeah, I did, Dad. And I decided I'm going to do whatever you and Mom want me to do, and I'm not going to complain about it. At that point, they needed to get the flaps out and put them on the side of my chest and yell, clear, you know, because... Uh, I mean, my kids are just as like yours. They're capable of giving me a run for my money. So I was not expecting her to be so accommodating. And I said, look, you've met me far more than halfway. I'll meet you far more than halfway. I'll take you to the mall. We'll find the perfect dress for the end. Whatever it costs, I'll buy it. <laughs> as it turned out, her mother and her went to the mall. And the way they justified the cost of that dress is that it fit them both. <laughs> they, see, technically, it's two for one, see? <laughs> Cultural giants can be very frightening. Yeah, medical giants that stare you down. I was with Darcy shortly after this event, speaking in Nashville, and we had been invited to be guests at the Dove Awards, and it's like the Grammys for Christian musicians. And I was, I was going to be speaking for a couple of days, and then, and then we'd go on a Wednesday evening, and she, uh, but she would, brought that dress she was going to wear, and I got in a tuxedo, and, uh, and I was going to wear that, and it was going to be like prom night for the Kimmels. And, but, and she had things she was working on in her room, and, and I would leave in the morning to speak. Well, this particular morning, I, I left about 6.30 and had some meetings, and I spoke, and I came back, and the Do Not Disturb sign was on the door, and when I came in, the lights were still off, I thought, this is strange, because my wife is a very industrious, resourceful woman. She's got a lot done by nine, and, and it was like 10 o'clock, and I came in, she's still in bed, and I came over and turned on the light. You could just tell right away something was seriously wrong with her. And, and I, I tried to figure out what it was, and, and I was in over my head, and I called down to the front desk. They sent somebody up to look at her. They brought a car around. We got her down to a clinic. They did some blood work, raced her right over to Baptist Hospital in Nashville. We spent the next three days in Nashville at that hospital. We were what you call the loneliest folks in Tennessee. And I stood there at the foot of her bed that night. We were supposed to be the I'm looking at her. She couldn't even lift her head off the pillow. I'm thinking, what is going on here? I mean, these things can scare you to death. There's economic giants, and a lot of people are feeling those right now because of what we've gone through and the turmoil in our economy. There's emotional giants. Maybe you had a perfectionist mom or an alcoholic dad. You have a former spouse who took everything but the blame and uses the kids against you. You have some high-control friend or a boss with a chip on his shoulder or some neighborhood bully that is, is always pushing your kids around. There's all kinds of things out there that get the best of us, and we need to know how to face them. Well, if you want to know how to face giants, then we ought to go to the Bible and go to the most famous story in the Bible about somebody facing a giant, 1 Samuel 17, and the famous story of David and Goliath. Now, because this is so familiar, this is Sunday school stuff from day one, from the time you're a little tiny child, you've heard this story so much, and the details of it, I'm not going to belabor a lot of 
the details. I just want to set the stage for it and then show you, make, make a, an observation of how it ended up and then draw a little uh, lesson from it. Starting at verse 1, what he does uh, is kind of lays out the land, the battle lines, and, and introduces the, the, the key players here. Verse 1, now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at a place in Judah, and they pinched camp at another place between the first place and a third place. Saul and the Israelites assembled in camp in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with a valley in between. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had bronze helmet on his head and he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear, his spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. The whole point of that paragraph is he's trying to show the enormous size of this man and strength of this man, and, by, and by, because it gives the weight of the armor, uh, it's trying to say it would take a, a, a pretty a, a sizable person to be able to even wear this stuff. This would overwhelm the average size man. He couldn't even move in it, and this is, this is simple for him. And so he's this enormous man, and then Goliath speaks in, in, in verse 8. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out of, uh, and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servant of Saul, of King Saul? Now, let's stop here for a second. That's where he made a, his first wrong major observation. He was not observing them properly. They were the, not the servants of Saul. They were the servants of Jehovah God. And he was about to find out. He says, he says, choose a man and have him come down to me, and if he's able to kill me, we'll become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, this day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. And on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Go down to verse 16. For 40 days the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now, what this is, is a, a, an excellent example of psychological warfare. Because he's come out there 40 days before. So 80 times he has made this challenge to them, and each time their, their, their courage has diminished that much more, their faith has diminished that much more, and their fear has multiplied. And so by now, they are absolute jello. And, and there's no fight left in them. They're so frightened. You see... They made a major mistake that any of us could make when it comes to encountering the enemies to our faith. And that is we let the enemy set the rules of engagement. And they let Goliath set the rules of the battle. Where's, where did they come up with that? That's ridiculous. You never let the enemy decide how we're going to fight things out. Last time I checked, all's fair in love and war. He can say whatever he wants. Let's just all go out there and just ambush. We'll just all gang up on him, kill him, and then go after the rest of them. No, he said only one of us is allowed to come out. <laughs> we do this with the things that frighten us. We let the, the things that frighten us set all the standards. And you see, they swallowed that, that poison pill called comparison. And that's something that any one of us can do. And once you swallow the pill, you lose automatically. And so they were comparing themselves to them. And the average Jewish soldier was probably 5'10". 
And I might even be on the high side. And so there was just no match there. But they were looking at the enemy and not their God. Then we're introduced to David. Actually, we met him earlier in 1 Samuel. But in verse 12, they kind of give a little bio on him. He's the son of a man named Jesse. He's from a very famous uh, a town that became famous, Bethlehem, um, in, in Judah. He was one of eight kids. Three of his brothers were actually there. His three oldest brothers were actually there at the battle. And he was the baby of the family. Now, there's some, when, you, when you're the baby of eight sons... There's something about that usually. And he was, there's no doubt that David was very different from everybody else. He was kind of a Renaissance man in the making because he loved poetry. And he, probably when you're around David, he's humming a lot. He's, he's got music in his head. And he loves architecture and so forth. If he lived today, he'd probably watch Oprah religiously, you know, and he gets in touch with his inner Oprah. And he, he's always like that. But he was a man's man, and so he was total Renaissance. I mean, he could, he could, he could roll up sleeves and go, go about, he's very tough. And he was assigned the job of keeping his father's sheep. And in the process of keeping the sheep, he had to defend the sheep, and, and at times against some pretty formidable foes like a lion and a bear. When he came out, his father sent him out to check on the brothers and, and, and bring the brothers some food and stuff. And when he got out there, he heard this challenge, and it incensed him. He couldn't believe how dare that man make those kind of challenges at our God. Who does he think he is? Somebody go out there and shut him up. And of course, nobody's going out. They're all hiding in their tents. Somebody go kill him. Are you crazy? Shut up. Look at him. What? He's not as close to us as he appears. You know, objects in the mirror are close. Anyway, the point is, he's over nine feet tall. Oh, big deal. He's just a big mouth. God can shut him up. But look at him again. See that, that shield is moving around by itself. There's a shield there behind him. He's just going to hand it to him. He doesn't throw a spear. He throws a, like a flagpole. Oh, for crying out loud. He's, he, he, we can, no, he's too... He's too big to hit. He's too big to miss. What are you talking about? Go out there and kill him. But they wouldn't go. But so he, he's, you know the story. He said, well, I'll go. And they're like, yeah, right. No, I killed a lion. I'll kill a bear. I'll, I'll take my slingshot out. And they yeah, right. But he went. Now, you know, they tried to put on Saul's armor, and, and you know, he, he couldn't handle that. He, it wasn't designed for him. He wasn't that kind of a, a fighter. He says, I'll go with my strong suit. I'm good with a slingshot. And so he went out there. Now, I want you to go towards the end of the of the story here. He stopped at a brook and he got some ammo. He got five stones, put it in a pouch, and then he went out to face Goliath. And we, and we hear Goliath's response to him in verse 41. Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David, and he looked David over, and he saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He couldn't believe that of all the people that finally took his challenge, they sent out a kid, not even a man. We don't know what his age, but figure somewhere between what, 12, 14, Pat, is that what they normal think in that range? 12, 14 years old. He's probably got his, close to his full height. He's got pretty good strength, but he's not, doesn't have the muscles of a man. But he has the heart of a lion because he has a confidence in a God that's bigger than his enemies. And so he says, am I a dog? He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. So that's a, at that point, that would have been all I needed to hear, and I'm out of here. <laughs> He's going to make me bird seed. <laughs> David weighs in before the battle begins. Look at this. 
He says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. In other words, David is not looking at Goliath in, in this incredible nine-foot-plus giant. He's looking at God, and he's got his confidence in God, who makes Goliath a non-entity. Goliath is nothing up next to God. He's nothing. And so he says, you come against me with a sword, javelin, and spear. I come against you. Look, he doesn't say, I come against you with a slingshot. No, no, no. He says, I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied this day. I love this part. In other words, think, think what he's doing. Goliath just said, I'm going I'm to feed you the birds. So he says, no, let me tell you how it's going to happen. This day, the Lord, see, he does not, he's not going to take credit for this battle. The Lord is going to hand you over to me. I'm going to strike you down. And get this, I'm going to cut off your head. And today, I'm not only going to give your carcass, but the carcasses of that whole ugly Philistine army hand, stand up there in the hill behind you. I'm going to feed them to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And then if you don't get anything else, I say this point, get the next line, because this is the punchline of the story. And the whole world will know that there's a God in Israel. The whole world will know. They didn't have CNN out there. They didn't have big trucks of satellite dishes and Fox News and all that stuff. How did he know that in this obscure battlefield. And I've, I've done a very brief tour to Israel, one of those I ran today where Jesus walked things, you know, and we just raced through. But we went behind the bus and they just slowed down enough to say, that's where the, the David killed Goliath, right there. In that little, you know, I wanted to just stay there the rest of the day, but they moved on. But they're out in the middle of nowhere. How did he know that 3,000 years later, on the other side of the globe, on the front side of 2009, we'd all be sitting here discussing the ramifications of that battle. The whole world will know that there's a God in Israel. You see, David had a clear understanding of his place in the, the redemptive plan of God, that he was not some chance happening on a purposeless planet, that he was not some kind of a, a, a non-entity that comes and goes, sunrise, sunset, and, and, and we're just, uh, you know, no, he saw himself as a part of God's plan, that God wanted to use him, and that even though he's just this little obscure little shepherd boy, he had, was called on to do a job for God, and God would, would, would empower him that. You see, I think a lot of the times we, we let our enemies get the best of us because we don't see ourselves in a proper perspective. God loved us enough to send his son to die on a cross for us. He gave us incredible value by, by coming here. Are you valued because Jesus died on a cross for you, or did Jesus die on a cross for you because you're valuable? Question. Let me say that again. Are you valuable because Jesus died on a cross for you, or did Jesus die on a cross for you because you're valuable? Yeah. Exactly. The answer is yes to both of them. And because of that, he wants to use you, and he wants to protect you, and he wants to empower you, no matter what you face. Whether it's the challenges of your kids, or your, you know, twisted family trees, or, or, or things at work, or an economy that's imploded, or your health, or whatever. He wants to be there for you, and he will be there for you. 
Well, you know how the story ends. He put, he reached in his pouch, took one of those stones, put it in his thing, wound it up, boom, and nailed him right between the eye, just buried it right between his eyes. Because look, he's covered head to toe with armor. There's only one really place to, to penetrate. He's looking at it. He's looking out at me. That's where I'm coming in. And he just buried that thing. And the last thing Goliath said when he hit the ground, nothing like this ever entered my mind before. Boom, down he goes. And he's down for the count. And he finishes him off. Now, as we kind of take this thing, I, I, here's a little homily I want to do from this for us as we take, go into this next year. I, I want to draw a, a, a little lesson from those stones. He said, it said he stopped at a brook and grabbed five stones, right? He said, well, how many did it take to kill Goliath? One. Which one did he grab? The third, the fifth? We don't know. Why did he grab five? Why did he grab five? Only took one to kill him. I, I don't know. Logic says he might have, I might miss on the first one. But I'm just going to keep firing away, and I want to make sure I have something back up on. I have no doubt that God's going to deliver me, but I don't know which one. But I'm just going to go prepared because he put a brain between my head, and he says, go prepared. So let's go back to that brook, and there's five stones in there. I want to point to five stones. I'm going to do this very quickly. Five stones that I'd like each one of you to pick up and put in your pouch and take with you into this coming year, because I think you're going to need them. The first stone that I see is a stone called truth. A stone called truth. The most effective weapon in Satan's arsenal is doubt. And he's used it since the Garden of Eden to trip up and then ultimately destroy the people who claim faith in God. And he loves to get us second-guessing ourselves, questioning others, and focused on our problems. That's why Jesus referred to Satan in, in John chapter 8, verse 44, as the father of lies. He's a liar, and there's only one way to combat falsehood and doubt, and that's with the uncompromised truth of God's Word. The Bible weighs in on how powerful God's truth is. Psalm 119.11, written by David, Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. And for him to turn his back on an enemy of God would have been sin. For him to let the enemy set the agenda would have been sin. For him to be coward and back down and not show faith would have been sin. Because this is really of anything, when it comes to facing our giants, it's about faith. And we think, no, our lives are about, you know, doing good things and, and being nice. Those are all important, but it says in the Bible, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And that's what he's looking for. He didn't find it in the Israelite army, but he found it in this young shepherd boy. Psalm 119, 116, all your words are true. Revelation 22, 6, these words are trustworthy and true. And we need to have a confidence in the Bible, in the truth of God's word. Because Satan will get us second-guessing ourselves and doubting ourselves. That's how he worked over uh, Eve in the Garden of Eden. In, John, in Genesis chapter 3, you read his, when he made his move on her, he lied to her. He gave half-truths. He twisted God's word on her, and she took the bait. But when you go to Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus was out in the wilderness, Jesus had been out there 40 days and nights without any food or water. And so at that point, at the end of 40 days, he's basically just about dead, right? Jesus just about dead. That's when Satan made his move on him, at his weakest point. 
He didn't get him on the front side of the 40 days. It's when he is almost spent, he makes his move on him. And how did Jesus combat Satan's lies and Satan's things? With God's word. He quoted scripture back at, at, at Satan. And you need to know that when those doubts and the worries and the fears of life want to get the best of you, you need to have God's word. And, and his uncompromised word, not words, you know, not an edited version of the Bible where I, 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 I'll embrace all the verses that make me feel good, but I'll reject the ones that I don't like. No, you take it all. And here's the other thing. Here's something God can't do. He can't say, you know that verse in uh, Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 12, that you've never read? that you're unfamiliar with. You see, God can't use Scripture we don't know. That's why we need to be students of the Bible, not coming here every Sunday and let, getting all this pre-digested stuff by the pastors and, and rely on that. No, we, we get this on Sunday to fuel us into the rest of the week where we on our own read the Bible and study the Bible and make it an ongoing part of our life. And when we do, it's amazing how strong we are in God's power. He says in uh, is it 2 Corinthians 15, 58 or 1 Corinthians 58, be steadfast and movable, which is? First, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And we've got to trust him in that. There's a rock called truth pick it up, take it in. There's a second stone down there. It's a stone called rest. And I want you to put that in your pouch and take it with you. You're going to need it. Because it's going to be very hard to defeat Goliath that you face this new year if you're consistently facing them physically exhausted. I feel certain that had David been trying to hold down two jobs, maintain up-to-date recall on all current events, see all the first-run movies, and average less than six hours sleep a night, the biblical narrative would have had a very different and disappointing ending. Listen, cars don't run on empty, stomachs don't run on empty, bank accounts don't run on empty, and courage doesn't either. We need to pace ourselves. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble at heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. We need to let God's rest be in our hearts. We need to pace ourselves. We need to get margin in there. We need to go to bed earlier, take a nap every once in a while, not try to accomplish so much that we, that we keep ourselves in a weak position. Because it doesn't matter how much you're doing, even good stuff, if the enemy comes along and takes you out of the, of the game for good. Especially if he, if he draws us into some deep temptation that scars us up and works us over. It says in, in the Proverbs, above all else, guard your heart. And one of the ways to guard our heart is by pacing ourselves. In the um, first war we had against Iraq, called Desert Storm, some of you are familiar with that, maybe even fought in that, General Schwarzkopf's, General Schwarzkopf's um, strategy was basically this. He, was, he set a date when he was going to invade, and he wanted to get all the pieces in place for the invasion. And then they counted back on the calendar 30 days. And, 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 they, and on that 30 days back from the, the invasion date, he said, okay, let's wake them up. And they started shelling all of the garrisons of the Republican Guard. They also took out all the, you know, um, 
communications and radar and, 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 and spoiled all of their airfields and all that stuff during this time. But the main thing is they said, let's just start shelling these guys. And, and the purpose was not necessarily to, to destroy the enemy because they were pretty well dug in there. It was to keep them awake. And he just dropped one in there consistently, you know, like every five minutes and, and so that they could not sleep. And then finally the invasion happened. And when the invasion happened, if you recall, these guys just rolled over you know, like, like they, just, they just collapsed like lawn chairs. And, 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 and we captured a lot of them. In fact, there's one story I was reading, uh, and, and there, was a, there was a guy that got separated from his unit in a, in a night battle, and he came around the sand dune, and there was a long column of Iraqi tanks, and he kind of came right around and walked right into them. You know, uh-oh. And then the lid came up on it, and, 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 and the guy said, we surrender. And he said, you bet you surrender. You're my prisoners. I'm taking you on, and I want the equipment too. And he led in the whole column of tanks and captured them all. Well, we were in, our, our intelligence guys were interviewing their officers. They said, what gives? You guys were, we told you the most frightening people in combat boots. And you were, he said, oh. He said, Here, here's what he said. We hadn't slept for 30 days. His words, the, the Iraqi officers' words, we had lost our courage. See, any of us will lose our courage and our ability to trust God and have faith in Him if we're always running on empty. Pace yourselves. There's a, the, there's a third rock down there, a stone, that I want you to pick up, and it's a stone called quiet. I think if you could go through a time warp and view David out in the wilderness, keeping an eye on his father's flock, he wasn't wearing headphones and bopping to the music in his iPod. Say, well, they didn't have them back then. I know, but every generation has had its noisemakers and distractors. And they had theirs too. But there was some quiet there. Now, David did not write these words, but he certainly lived them. In Psalm 4610, it says, Be still and know that I am God. See, God wants to convince us in the quiet what is still true in the midst of the threatening noises of life. If you ever read C.S. Lewis's book, um, uh, The Screwtape Letters, it's where two demons are, there, you know, kind of a, uh, uh, an officer and a minion, and they're communicating each other, uh, sending letters to each other to try and figure out how to, a strategy to keep uh, a follower of Christ from being effective. And one of the things he says, he says, fill his life with noise and entertainment. Keep him distracted. So he cannot key into the, the heart of God and the voice of God. We need to quiet down our lives and have pockets of quiet. And I, I want to say something that might sound, uh, I want to make sure you, I'm understood. I mean, I, we love praise and worship music, but, but you even need to shut that off sometimes. And for crying out loud, don't listen to talk radio all day. I can tell when people listen to talk radio all day. I can tell. You know how I can tell? Here's the Bible, and here's their opinion that has been set by somebody else, and they... Make the Bible go through those people's filters instead of the other way. There's a place for all that stuff, but just don't let it run your life and set your agenda because God's word and his truth wants to lead us. And he wants to lead us in the calm and the quiet. A truthful heart and a rested heart and a quiet heart naturally lead to a prayerful heart. And that's the fourth stone I think we should put in our sack. A prayerful heart. I don't know what's waiting for you in these coming months, but I know that prayer is one of the best forms of ammunition you can take with you. And it doesn't need proof, it just needs practice. Because it says in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, that those who hope in the Lord, he'll renew their strength, and they will soar on wings like canaries. 
Isn't it interesting? He doesn't say robins, quail, doves, canary. He says eagles. I don't believe there's any throwaway words in the Bible. God is very selective. And on this verse, he chose eagles. Why eagles? It's because they fly so high. And they get above it all. And they have so much better perspective. I was playing golf with my brother-in-law down in a, a wonderful course down at the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay. And we came on this one hole. And on the tee box says, you got to play this. They had it in quotes, library rules. you got to whisper. Because there's an eagle's nest down by the, um, um, the green. And of course, everybody wants to see the eagle. And we're looking and he's not in his nest because it's daylight. He's out working. He's out hunting and finally, my, my brother had very good eyes, and we looked at it. Finally, he saw this little tiny speck up there hovering way above us. And see, God wants us to get up there. And here's the thing. If you fly with eagles, see, you notice they don't go in flocks. There's not, there goes a flock of eagles. <laughs> see, when you fly up that high, you fly alone. And many times, it, all you have going in to face some of your giants is just you and God. That's it. But that's all you need. If Jesus is all you got, he's all you need. And that's where prayer comes in. We need to talk with him and, communi- and really commune with our hearts to him. Listen, the Bible is filled with stories of people who prayed and God answered. Abraham prayed and his wife had a son. It's a big deal. Women have sons all the time. Not when they're 90. In fact, they don't want their husband thinking of siring one. You stay away from me, I'm old. But God had made a promise. And he fulfilled that promise. <laughs> Moses prayed, and seas parted. Joshua prayed, city walls fell down. Elijah prayed, fire came down from heaven. Daniel prayed, God shut the mouths of the lions. You go into history, John Knox prayed, Queen Mary trembled. You ought to look that one up in, 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 in history and see what that's all about. George Mueller prayed, and the orphanages of London were built and maintained. Say, who's George Mueller? Well, you know, if you ever saw the movie Oliver or read the book... Uh, Oliver Twist. There, there was a time in, in London's history where a lot of children were abandoned at street level, and, and very bad people many times would take these kids, and, and, and in order to protect them and feed them, he'd get, they'd get them to go out and, and be uh, criminals for them. But, but George Mueller felt bad for them because he was a bad kid himself. He was a rough teenager and came to Christ, and he had a heart for the for these, these, these uh, disenfranchised kids. And so he started these orphanages, and they were maintained back then the same way they are now, through the benevolence of people who give to them. And so he had to pray in everything they had. And I love this one story I read about him. It was dinner time, and he came down to the, to the dining hall, and, and they hadn't set the tables for dinner. And it was almost time for anyone in the kitchen. He said, you haven't set the tables yet. The kids are going to be here any second. Well, why didn't you set the tables? Because there's no food. What do you mean? We're all out of food. The kids ate it all. But why didn't you set the tables for dinner? Because there's no food. But you should still set the... Mr. Muley, you don't get it. Why set the tables? There's no food. He said, no, you don't get it. God's never been late for a meal here. I'm not assuming he's starting tonight. We got to be ready for him. Set the table. The food's on the way. And so they set the table, and he's up there, and he, the kids come in, and he's praying, Lord Jesus, these kids have played hard and worked hard today, and you, and, and you love them, so thanks for the food you're going to provide. And they all think, he's lost his mind. Meanwhile, out on the cobblestone, little dairy cart's coming down there, and the horse is going, all of a sudden, the nor- horse just wah, threw a rod or something. I mean, <laughs> down, he died. <laughs> Even door opened. Oh, Mr. Mueller, my horse died here. Yeah. I said, do your kids like eggs? Oh, yeah, scramble them up. How about cheese? Oh, they love that. That would be great. Do your kids like horse? Saw it up. Drag it in here. <laughs> 
Listen, Gilligan prayed, and he finally got off that island. We need to be people who pray. <laughs> All right, quick review, quick review. So far, four rocks. What are they? First one is the rock called? Second? Third? Fourth? There's one more down there. There's a stone called laughter. Pick it up, put it in your sack. You'll need it. You'll need it. And what I want to just say here is don't take yourself or your tough situations so seriously. And for heaven's sakes, don't take them so personally. No matter how big the challenges that face us, and no matter how many times we stumble on our way to encounter them, we'd all fare far better if we would all just lighten up. Here's some advice I got as a young man, and it's really served me well. That is, none of us are as good as people say we are, nor is our life as good as we think it is. But neither are we as bad as people say we are, and our life is as bad as we think it is. No matter what, you can get through this. And laughter is a great medicine for that. And it's an even better weapon. And you can use it against the fears within and the foes without. And you'll be surprised how quickly your glass hit the ground. It's a great verse in Proverbs 15. It talks about a happy heart. It makes the spirit glad. I close with this. Uh, I had a friend named Jeff Ostrowski, a wonderful friend through my youth. Went to school together. And I loved to go to Jeff's house where they had company because they were the funniest people. I mean, they were beyond belief funny. These were, the kids were almost like all com comedians, and they would gather together, and they would just get the kids, and they loved to get their grandmothers and aunts laughing, because these are, these are ladies that were very old, and, 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 and they had the skin that hung, and they, and they would always laugh, we always loved it, because they'd take their hands, they'd do like that, and then they're laughing, we would just roar, but these people were so, and Jeff and his brother, they were so funny. His name was Jeff Ostrowski. This was the mid and late 50s, Ostrowski. He was a Polish Jew, and his parents were Polish Jews. And you could go into his house, and there was a wall in there of pictures of family members that died in the, in the, in the Nazi concentration camps that weren't coming home. And yet in the middle of that, they still had laughter to help salve the pain and the hurt. And God wants to give that to you too. We have a chance to extend our worship with him and, 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 and focus in on why we have so much confidence, no matter what our, our giants are, by, by uh, focusing in on the Lord's table. And, and to, let me pray for us as we, as we turn our focus on our communion. Lord Jesus, I thank you for each person in this room. You know every one of them by name. You know many, how many hairs are in their head. You could write out a code to their DNA for these when they were little, you could tell us the name of the doll or teddy bear they, they slept with. You, you, you know all their pets. You care about all of us. You care for us intimately. And I pray, Lord, that we might trust you fully because of that. We thank you for your death on the cross and your resurrection on our behalf. And now as we focus on this, we, we have a bad habit of forgetting, and we need to remember. And you asked us to do this on a regular basis so we won't forget. So help us now as we focus on this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.